This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Thank you so much for the very uh, generous introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to see everybody. It's uh, hard to imagine, it's hard to believe that a year has already passed. Uh, a year ago, I had the great fortune to speak at the Kailo's inaugural event. And boy, has uh, life changed in the course of one year time. Global pandemic, financial crisis, the whole world is in turmoil. But it seems like the one steady, the one anchor that we all have in our lives is Lima Atayra. So Baruch Hashem, while everything else is, so to speak, in a whirlwind, we come here to this Kailal to hold on to the Eitz Chayim that gives us stability, it gives us clarity, and whatever strength we could use to hold on to our Limanat Torah, that will give us the uh, peace of mind and the stability to uh, plow through and weather through the storm. So tonight is a very special night. It's actually a special night on the Jewish calendar, not only because it's the first opportunity halachically to be able to read the Megillah, it's already Yud Aleph, but tonight is the yard site of one of the all-time great Gedele Yisrael, one of my personal favorites, Tonight is the yard of Reb Chaim Yosef David Azulai Vechida. Somebody that I feel very special connection to. It's interesting that in 1945, right after the Holocaust, so all the survivors, they're in Europe, and uh, they have nothing to eat, they have nothing to wear, and more importantly, they have no svarim. So my grandfather, he should live and be well. Baruch Hashem, uh, on Vav Adar, he celebrated his birthday. So we'll just say he was 100 years old quite a while ago. He was from uh, the, he was a student of Rav Menachem Zemba. He was a Ben Bayes by Rav Menachem Zemba. He had smicha from before the war. And after the Holocaust, the very first sefer that he published for the survivors was the Lev David of the Chida. So I feel a very special connection to the Chida. I'd like to share with you an amazing observation of the Chida. Chida observes what is the very first comment of the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch, in Arachayim? The Ramah says, Haga, Shivisi Hashem, Lenegdi, Tamek. I place God before me always. Actually, that's not the first comment of the, of the Ramah. The first comment of the Ramah is the Machaber says, Yizgaber Kari, you should strengthen yourself like a lion to get up in the morning. Says Ramah, and even if you don't get up that early, at least don't miss Mantvila. That's the first comment of the Ramah. And then the Ramah says, He's even asked, this is the only time in Shachanach where the Ramah says, He says a comment and he says, again. So they say, usually the word means a footnote, a comment. The Ramah comments on the words of the Shachanach. So, while he's speaking, he doesn't interrupt his conversation to say Haga again, but the reason given, given I want to turn the name of the Kamarna, is that usually when an author writes a Sefer, he alludes to the name of Hashem in the beginning of the Sefer. Yod Kei Haga is Gematria 13, so he wrote Haga twice to allude to the name of God. Okay, so the first comment of the Ramah is Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samet, I place God before me always. What is the last comment of the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch and Archaim? What? What's your name? Avram Horowitz. Avram Horowitz. Give the man a cigar. The Toivlev Mishta Tamid. A son with a good heart is always at a party. 
But interesting, says the Chida, the Ramah begins our Achayim with the word Tamid. Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi, Tamid. The Ramah ends Shulchan Aruch, the Lev Toiv Mishteh Tamid. Someone who has a good heart will always be at a party. Says the Chida, these are the two Tamidim of life. The Tamid Shal Shachar and the Tamid Shal Bein Harbayim. These are the two steadies in life, the two constant obligations in life. We need to place God before us always. And if we do so, says the Ramah, we will merit to always be happy in life. In other words, everyone's looking for the secret of happiness. But no one seemed to have found it. You could go to, uh, in the olden days, they used to have stores. You know what a store is? People would leave their homes and they would go into a car, drive. In, in Brooklyn, you circle around the block about 100 times until you find the parking spot. Then you go inside and you overpay for something that you could order on the computer for that half price. That's what a store is. So, yeah. So, it's uh, interesting. Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Tamid. The Toyflate Mishta Tamid. If you place God before you always, you will merit to always be happy. So they had the, the, the store, Barnes & Noble. You go into the store, one of the largest sections in the store is uh, happiness, how to find happiness. So many books were written on how to find happiness, apparently nobody has found it yet. So the Ramah is telling you, what is the secret to happiness? If you place God before you always, it means we recognize, we feel, we appreciate that whatever occurs in our life is the Rebbeinu Shalom bringing us to better places. The Rebbeinu Shalom is orchestrating that in our life. That gives a person a certain simcha and a certain satisfaction. I want to examine this uh, idea that recognizing the hand of Hashem in our lives will give us greater satisfaction, greater happiness through the lens of Megillah Sester. There is a parak in Megillah Sester. To me, it's a very difficult parak to understand. I was always bothered by this question. You go to the end of the Megillah and parak Yud begins with the following passage. Achashverosh placed taxes on the people and all the islands. In other words, the Megillah concludes. This is the climax of the story. This is the summit of Megillah Sester. Megillah Sester, of course, is trying to teach us God's divine hand, the divine providence in history. The Megillah ends, Achashverosh taxes the people. Isn't that odd that the Megillah even mentions the fact that Achashverosh taxes the people? Who cares that Achashverosh taxes the people? It's irrelevant. It seems like useless information. I don't really care that much about Biden's tax plan for the United States of America. Why would I care about Achashverosh's plan, tax plan? Is this necessary to be included in the Megillah? But by the way, this is the question of the Briskarov on the Gilasasta. Maybe the last piece of the Briskarov on the Gilasasta. But what magnifies the question is the next Pasuk in the Megillah, which is the penultimate Pasuk in the Megillah. What's the next Pasuk in the Gilasasta? The Pasuk says, You want to know the whole story about Mordechai? You want to know the politics of the times? You want to know the political intrigue? You want to know what palace life was like? The Pasuk says, Do you want to know the history of the times? You want to get some historical background? 
Wrong book. Don't look here on Miguel Acesta. You're not going to find the information over here. You know where you're going to find it? Go to the books of the Chronicles of Persia and Media. What's the Miguel telling you? The Miguel wants us to go to Iran and to open up some ancient uh, library and pull out the Chronicles of Persia Media and find out the rest of the Purim story. What exactly is the Megillah saying? Oh, you want to know the rest of the story? Go to the Chronicles of Persia Media. Says Rabbi Chesed Abramsky, this Pasuk is articulating the central message of Megillah's Esther. The Megillah is telling you that not one word or detail is written in this document to give you an understanding of the times, to, to help you understand the context of the period that the story took place in, this document was written for one reason and one reason only, to recognize the hand of Hashem in events of our lives. And if you think that any Pasuk in this Megillah was written so that you could get an appreciation for Persian palace life, wrong book. All information about the kings of Persia is included in the Chronicles of Parasumadai. So that begs the question then, why would the Megillah end with this seemingly useless piece of information that Achashverosh taxed the people? And I believe that understanding the answer to this question will open up for us a new appreciation of the Purim story. There's a Gemara Masech the Megillah that says three words. And to me, these three words are the key to understanding the story. You may have heard the story before. You may have heard the story many times. You need to know these three words to appreciate the story. The Pasuk says the king couldn't sleep. He had insomnia. He was having nightmares. And all of a sudden, he was, he was dreaming. Haman was coming to kill him. The king says, who's in the courtyard? He's coming to the outer courtyard of the king. To tell the king. To hang Mordechai. It's on the tree. That he prepared for him. That he prepared for him. Literally, Haman was coming to hang Mordechai on the tree. Then Haman prepared to hang Mordechai on Says the Gemara, that's not what it means. Tana, it was taught, not heichin loy, Haman prepared for Mordechai, loy heichin. Haman prepared the tree for Haman. Yeah? Heichin loy, what does it mean he prepared for him? The Marsha says, of course he did it for him. Why does it have to say the word loy? It should say, Ashar heichin, why heichin loy? Tana he prepared it for himself. Meaning, Haman took this ridiculously tall gallows. It's 50 amais tall. According to the Chazoinish, that means it was 100 feet tall. I mean, I don't know where he found the tree 100 feet tall. Nayaf Teva. Okay, there you go. The Maharal says that, actually, right? So Haman takes this 100 foot tall tree. And he thinks he's building the gallows for Mordechai. Really, he's building the gallows for himself. This is the key to understanding the Purim story. Because this is not an isolated event. This is not a one-time occurrence 
where Haman thought he was preparing the tree for Mordechai, really he was doing it for himself. This is a event from which we need to extrapolate how the Hashkacha Pratis was operating during the Purim story. And let me give you a, a few examples. We're going to start with a simple example on the Chumash. There's this guy by the name of Parai. You know Parai? You know him? Pharaoh. You know, he comes, the astrologers come to Paro and he said, they say, you know, Paro, today, today, the savior of the Jewish people is going to be born. Paro doesn't know what to do. He starts consulting. He starts thinking, what should he do? So he said, Paro doesn't have a great idea. We're going to annihilate the savior of the Jewish people. They say, how are you going to do that? We're going to take every single kid. We're going to dump him into the river. But, but uh, the advisor says he might be Egyptian. That's right. We're going to kill every single kid. I have nothing better to do than to put a stop to the savior of the Jewish people. And God's looking down from heaven. And God says, uh, Paro, you think you're going to kill and annihilate the savior of the Jewish people? Watch this, Paro. This kid's mother is going to put the kid in the river. The kid's going to be floating in the river. Your daughter is going to be bathing in the river. She's going to hear the kid crying. She's going to take in the kid. She's going to bring the kid into your palace. She's going to be rocking the kid to sleep at night. It's three o'clock in the morning, and this little baby is still screaming. Bastia says, Dad, I'm so tired. Do me a favor. You want to just hold the kid for an hour? So Paro's sitting there at 3 a.m. in the morning, rocking the future Jewish savior to sleep. And then at 4 a.m., Bastia says, you know, we're out of formula. You want to run to CVS, Paro, and get some formula? And Paro goes out and mold in his pajamas and mold the night at 4 a.m. And he's buying formula for the kid. And Bastia says, you know, Dad, kindergarten is very expensive. Could I borrow your American Express card? Would you mind covering the kid's tuition? And Paro pays for the kid's tuition. And Paro feeds the kid and pays for his room and board. And Moshe Rabbeinu, the savior that Paro was trying to annihilate, Paro grooms and raises this kid in his own home. That is how Hashgacha Pratis works. The Yibani Shalom says, you pick the poison. You decide how you want to fight against my people, and I'm going to use your plans, your schemes, your machinations against you. That's amazing, Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, that why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to grow up in the Jewish palace? Why couldn't Moshe Rabbeinu grow up, uh, you know, with the... Uh, from Jews, he has to grow up among an Egyptian with an Egyptian father. Even Ezra says, Moshe could not grow up with the Jewish people. The Jewish people were slaves. They had a low morale. They had a slave mentality. Moshe had to be a leader. He had to be a king. He was a melech, a Hebeshore melech. And if Moshe would have grown up among the Jewish people, he would never develop the leadership qualities necessary to be the manhig of Kali Yisrael. So who, where did he have to grow up? among royalty, in Paro's palace. Paro groomed Moshe Rabbeinu. He developed him. Moshe Rabbeinu came. His uh, tie wasn't straight. Paro said, straighten up your tie. You're going to be a ruler one day. You're going to be a king one day. Who created Moshe? Paroi! Paroi kibel Torah misinai. If not for Paroi, we would never have a Torah. We would never have a Moshe Rabbeinu. Why Paroi? Because Paro tried to destroy Moshe Rabbeinu. So Hashem said, not only are you not going to destroy my Rabbeinu, you will bring my Rabbeinu to fruition. Let me give you an example from the Megillah. So 
So Haman had a great idea. He's going to make a decree to annihilate the Jewish people. And if you look carefully in the Pesuk, in the Parak Gimel, Pasuk Gimel, Haman said, We're going to send out the message to all the runners to do what? To eradicate the Jewish people. But if you look in the next Pasuk, the Pasuk says, the text of the letter, which could be read in every community, in other words, the posters on the wall that you can read in every community, you know what it said on the, in, in Eretz Yisrael, they have in Meishar, the Pashkabila, and these posters everywhere, you know what it said on the poster? Nothing. It said, Beware, be prepared for this and this day. In other words, on the official documents, the governors and the officers knew exactly what was going to happen on Yud Gimel Adar. Namely, the Jews were going to be eradicated. But on the official posters, all it says was, be ready for this and this thing. Why did Haman do that? Haman didn't want the Jews to get wind of the fact that they were going to be annihilated on the 13th of Adar. Because if we would have figured out what was about to happen to us, what would we have done? We would have gone to the governor, we would have given him shaykhad, we would have bribed him, and uh, we would have gotten off the decree. So Haman sort of kept it as a secret, what was supposed to happen to the Jewish people. Little did Haman realize that because he left it open, later on, Achishver says, you know, uh, I don't think we could rescind the decree. We can never retract something that was written in the name of the king. So Mordechai said, what do you mean? Nothing was written. All it says was, just said, be ready for this day. So now let's uh, flip the coin. Let's turn the tables and the Jews will kill their enemies. This is my favorite example. In the beginning of the story, Achshersh has a problem with his wife. So I have a question. You have a problem with your wife? Who do you ask? Go to a therapist. You could go to a marriage counselor. You could go to the rabbi. Achashverosh goes to Chachomim Yoideihoitim, to the sages who knew the times. Simple question. Why is Achashverosh going to anybody? I thought he's the king of the world. He's Molach the Kippah. He ruled over the whole globe. He has a problem with his wife. So why can't Achashverosh decide what should happen to his wife? I mean, he rules the world. He can't decide what should happen to his wife. He has to ask advisors. So the only God explains not. Achashverosh cannot decide on his own. The Pasuk says, Kichen devar ha-melech means as follows. When something is relevant to the king himself, the king was not allowed to make his own decision. Something relevant to the king himself, he had to ask his advisors. I have a question for you, really? Achashosh was not allowed to take matters into his own hand? By the end of the story, <clears throat> remember, Achashosh steps out for a moment, and Haman begins to plead with Esther, and Haman takes a misstep with Esther, and Achashosh walks back in, and he sees... Hagam yimi says, Haman, you're doing this while I'm in the palace? And what does Achishverosh say? I don't know what to do with this guy. And Bayon Mecharvoyna, Charvoyna says, there's a tree right here. And what does Achishverosh say? Tulu, Allah, hang him. Why didn't Achishverosh have to ask his advisors, what should I do with this Haman guy? 
in the beginning of the story, Akashirish couldn't decide what to do with Vashti. He wasn't authorized to make his own decision. Why, by the end of the story, is he authorized to make his own decision? Ah, oh, says the Gra. That's because there's a guy by the name of Memuchan. What does Memuchan advise Achashverosh? Yeitze dvar malchos melafani. Says Achashverosh, what kind of ridiculous law is there in Persia that the king can't make a unilateral decision, make his own decision? I motion the following new legislation. From now on, the king makes the call all by himself. You make the decision. Thank you so much, Mamukhan, for changing the law in Persia. And now the king makes his own decision. This way, by the end of the story, when Achshirish doesn't know what to do with Haman, he can kill you. Because Chazal say, who is Mamukhan? Mamukhan is none other than Haman himself. Haman thought he was empowering Achashverosh because he wanted to knock off Vashti, because Haman wanted to advance his own cause. Little did Haman realize that by passing this law in Persia, he was killing himself. God looks down from Shemayim and he says, you pick the plan. You pick the poison. I don't need to knock you off. We're going to say in the Alanisim, we say, God nullifies the plan of the Goyim. They kill Kaltoy as Machshavtoy. He corrupts their thoughts. The Rebbe says, You make the plan. I don't need to knock you off. I could use your plan to bring about what I want to bring. God illuminated my eyes. And we come to the end of the Megillah. And Achashosh is taxing me. What do I need to know that for? So there's a great book. The name of this book is Sefer Ezra. Sefer Ezra speaks about the return of the Jewish people in the time of the Second Mesonite. And the impoverished, destitute, forlorn Jewish people return to the land of Israel. And they want to rebuild a second temple. And there's a great man by the name of Darius you know what his name is in Hebrew? Daryavesh. Who is Daryavesh? He is the son of Achashverosh and Esther. And the Jewish people say, can we build a temple, Darius? And Darius says, for sure. I would like nothing better than for you to build a second basin. So the Jews say, but we have no money. How are we going to build the second basin mikdash? So the Pasuk says in Parakhes of Sefer Ezra, Umini Simtaim. Darius issues the following decree. That I want all my officers to cooperate. With the elderly Jews. To rebuild the temple. And where are they going to get the money from? Give them all the tax money in the treasury to rebuild the second temple. So Darius opens wide the treasury, and the Jews come in and take all the tax money, and they build the second base, Hamikdash. And I ask you, friends, where did Darius get all this tax money from? How did he have so much tax money to commission to build the second temple? And the answer is, 
Because his dad gave him a big Yerusha of all the tax money that he collected at the end of the Purim stuff. And now, if you understand the Megillah in this life, the story has come full circle. Because how does the Purim story begin? Achashverosh throws a big bash. What's he celebrating? Mar Megillah says he's celebrating the fact that Jeremiah prophesied that the Jewish people will return and build the second temple at the end of 70 years. And the 70 years are up and the temple wasn't built. So Achashverosh says they didn't build it after 70 years. The temple will never be built. So Achashverosh is celebrating. He's partying that the second Beis HaMikdash will never, ever be built. And little does Achashverosh know God is looking down from heaven and he says, Asher, you think you're celebrating the temple will never be built? At this party, you're going to ask your wife to come out. She's going to refuse. So you're going to have to find a new kala. And you're going to marry Esther. And you're going to have a kid by the name of Daryavesh. And by the end of the Purim story, you, Achashverosh, not only will you not have celebrated the destruction of the second temple, that party will cause that the second temple will be built because you will be the chief fundraiser for the second base Hamikdash. So if you wanted to know who built the second base Hamikdash, Achashverosh. And maybe that's why the Gemara says in the Tamid that when you walked into the second temple, there was an image of Shushan Habira. Why would they put an image of Shushan Habira? They wanted us to remember where this temple came from. Haman thinks he's making a gallows to hang Mordechai. He's making a gallows to hang himself. Achashverosh thinks he's celebrating the destruction of the second temple. Achashverosh is creating the charity campaign to be able to rebuild the second temple. I'll give you one example in more modern history. Second to the United States of America, the most powerful and influential community in Jewish world history was the Jewish community of Spain in the 15th century. But after Reconquesta, after Ferdinand and Isabella conquered the whole Iberian Peninsula, they set their sights to eradicate Judaism from Spain, figuring they will diminish all Jewish influence in the Iberian Peninsula. And in 1492, they expelled about 300,000 Jews from the country saying to themselves, the Jews will never be a powerful or influential people again. And what day of the year did the expulsion come to conclusion? Thursday, August 2nd, 1492, Tisha B'Av. In the archives of Seville, there's a document written by a sailor who reports that as this child, he was a cabin child, being taken to Africa, was traveling on the river Rio Tinto, he passes by three ships that were at dock that were going to set sail the very next day, commissioned and paid for by Ferdinand and Isabella. This child writes, he saw Christopher Columbus, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, primed to discover the United States of America, which would become an even greater haven of Klal Yisrael and Tyre. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.